0: All right. Why don't you turn to Philippians chapter two, verse twenty-five through thirty tonight. Philippians two twenty-five through thirty, the message entitled "Epaphroditus, the Servant." Um, a certain dog always boasted of his ability as a runner. And then one day, a rabbit that he had uh, was chasing got away from him. This brought a lot of ridicule from the other dogs because of his previous boasting all the time. His explanation was the following, quote, You must remember that the rabbits were running for his life while I was only running for my dinner. Too many people in the church run after Jesus as a meal ticket and not if hits, really, their life. When we are born again, we're born again to full-time, ladies and gentlemen. Stop and think how you used to live for sin. It wasn't part time. It really wasn't. And when we're born again, we need to realize that He is our life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So important. Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, said, I do not believe it is before every Christian, I'm sorry, that it is before every Christian either to serve his God with all his heart or to fall into sin. I believe we must either go forward, or we will, or we must fall. The rule is in Christian life: if we do not bring forth fruit unto the Lord our God, we shall lose even our leaves and stand like a winter tree, bare and withered. As you know, Paul the apostle has reproved the Philippians for their lack of unity and humility. By giving them the example of Christ as God humbling himself, taking on the form of a servant to the point of death, even the death of the cross, the epitome of the example of what he's calling for. But knowing man, Paul knew some would probably respond by saying, well, he was God and we're mere men. We can't do that. And so he gives them some human examples. He's given them himself, Timothy, and now he gives them one last one, Epaphroditus, as he is portrayed by Paul as the suffering servant here in these verses. Let me read for us verse 25 to 30, chapter 2. He says, Yet I consider it Necessary to send to you, Paphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick almost unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem. Because for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service towards me. The is portrayed as a suffering servant, by three characteristics that he's presented here. First, Epaphroditus was a committed servant, verse 25. Second, Epaphroditus was a caring servant, verse 26 through 28. And thirdly, Epaphroditus was a commended servant, verse 29 through 30. He begins by presenting Epaphroditus as a committed servant, verse 25. Notice the apostle Paul here describes Epaphroditus as a brother. Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother. Paul is using the word brother, Adolphus, which literally means born of the same womb. So when you have a brother and sister that has the same parent, you realize they're, they're the same genetic people that put you together. Okay? They come from the same womb. He was not one who was hypocritical in this belief. Now, this birth is spiritual. Just as you know that real brothers and sisters come from the same womb, the same father, same mother. But also now you're born from the same spiritual origin, the father. Um, Many of us would have never called each other brother and sister when we were in the world. But in Christ, we see that we're family of God, as we see. Because we've all experienced the same birth through Jesus Christ. And here Paul demonstrates his unhypocritical belief because he saw Jew and Gentile as one. Again, uh, sometimes we lose the, um, the prejudice that was there in those days. It was very, 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 very thick, very hateful. And, um, and Paul uh, always was persecuted for that by the Jews because he did accept the Gentiles as children of God. Uh, the article, my, my, indicates the mutual family relationships of this new birth. In, uh, under the name of Jesus. And the article, my, once again applies to the three nouns that are going to be given to us, the first one here. But the article applies to all of them, my, my, my. In other words, Paul sees himself as an equal with these men. He doesn't see himself above them. He doesn't see himself beneath them. He, he does, he's not in competition with them, but he sees them as equals. Uh, one of the things that I believe God has blessed us with on our staff is that we're all... See each other as equals. We There's no competition. There's nothing. You don't stick together for 30-some years when you um, are competing against one another. When you recognize God's anointing, God's calling, God's distinction, and God's wisdom to put everything together, then you don't mess it up. You just serve the Lord and thank Him for it and thank God for each other. That's important. I remember in the world, you know, there's, many, um, there's very few uh, musical groups that stayed together. Sooner or later, um, the head lead guy wanted to go on his own. Messed up the whole thing. And they weren't wise enough to see that it was a group thing that made him good. And they messed it up. And it's the same with Christianity. No different because we still have sin nature. He was not intimidated by those... Of Jerusalem, who still had a hard time with the Gentiles. You remember, Peter played uh, the hypocrite over in Antioch in Galatians 2:11 through 14, as he uh, was eating with the Jews, and then some Jews came from uh, Jerusalem, and he tiptoed over to the kosher table, and Paul got in his face and rebuked them. Okay, that can happen to any of us. Sometimes, cause of pressure, whatever it is, and we have to eat some crow. But we have to come back to where we should be. We have to admit our failure. Paul was a kinsman based on the fact that both Paul and he belonged to the family of God. That's their identity. That's your identity and mine. It's not how much money you make, how much money I make. It's not what kind of car you drive. It's not what kind of clothes you wear. It's that we're both uh, uh, sons of God and daughters of God by grace through faith. The occasion that um, prompted the subject was that Paul... Uh, considered it necessary to send Epaphroditus to the Philippians, um, the word considered there is an, what they call an epistolary heiress to place himself, the way he's writing it, placing himself into the time bracket so when it's read, that it would be read as a past tense because they've just received the letter. We don't have that kind of tense in English, so you know, so we just have to describe what it does when you read that in the Greek. Um, Paul just said that he was going to send Timothy as soon as he could, as he found out what was going to happen to him, but then he would also come. He he said that in verse 23 and 24. Now, the word necessary means indispensable under the circumstances. The same word is translated more needful in chapter 1, verse 24. He had been sick and near death, marking the urgency as we'll see in verse 27. Epaphroditus is a Gentile name, meaning charming, from the goddess of love, Epaphroditus, or Venus. His name appears only one other time, here in chapter 4, verse 18, of this letter. He had been charmed by the idolatrous deception of religion and blinded to the truth of God, as many of us were before we came to Christ, whether it be by whatever it was. You fill in the blank. He now had encountered the Son of God's love and been set free to see the truth of God's word by the Spirit of God, just as you and I were at one time. He was uh, committed to his new birth to walk in the light even as Paul. They were one, they were equal. He should not be confused again with Epaphras of Colossae in Colossians 1.7. He was the pastor of Colossae. Um, notice also in 25 the apostle Paul described Paphroditus as a fellow worker next my fellow worker literally Paul used the phrase my fellow worker simply to mean one with, with being one with him in work and companion in that work uh, whether it be he with another or, or Epaphroditus it's, it's joining together you're both in the work it's always um, the Bible says two's better than one. Anything you do, two's better than one. Um, sometimes we have to do things alone. And it's okay, but um, but work or anything else is uh, much easier and mu- much funner when you have two people. Um, and certainly um, in ministry is protection. We never travel alone. We always go by twos. We don't go by one. When we get on a plane or go somewhere else, we don't go by one. Okay. We make sure that we are accountable to the Lord and to all that's going on to make sure that we don't give any opportunities to the enemy or anybody else to slander us. Um, the word um, here is in context of the gospel, uh, a companion, a worker with him. Um, the word is used of Priscilla and Aquila uh, as helpers in Christ. In Romans 16.3, and the word is also used of Paul and Apollos, fellow workers together with God, in 1 Corinthians 3, nine. Notice Paul indirectly acknowledged the unity of the body through diversity. Many members, but one body, in 1 Corinthians 12.12, 12, and the human body is a great illustration because every generation will understand it. Because every person has a body. That illustration will never grow old or come to a place where no one understands what he's saying. It's universal. And in spite of the illustration, the church misses it. We miss it at times. And the competition comes in and the uh, carnality comes in and all that kind of stuff. So that's why we're encouraged to put on the mind of Christ, to be the example of Christ, to be filled with the Spirit, to be grounded in the Word, to stay in fellowship, to, to remain humble. Gifts may be the same, but they operate differently. But not everybody has the same gift. And um, gifts always are for the edification of the members of the body of Christ, not for myself. Just like your hand is not there for the hand, your hand is there for the rest of your body. And likewise, my gift of pastor teacher is for your edification. I learn and I grow, but primarily it's for you um, to benefit from it. Um, Paul is testifying Epaphroditus, his brother, saw himself as a necessary functioning part of the body of Christ with others. Epaphroditus understood this illustration, he understood what the church is about. Um, there's no, today we got so much junk because it's so secular and so much has come into the church and we've allowed um, uh, psychological low self-esteem and and words like dysfunctional and codependent and it's a disease and, 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 and you're a Christian but you're still listening to the worldly vocabulary and the worldly worldview. And and, and it, it goes against what the scripture says so you have the same problems as people in the world. There's a conflict. There's a butting of heads. So we have to put on the mind of Christ. Having at least one gift, the Bible says each of us. First Peter four ten. So you and I have at least one gift, and we are to use it for the glory of God, for the edification of those in the body of Christ. Giving an account to God one day at the bema seat of Christ. First Corinthians three thirteen through fifteen, and the motive will be um, the love by which we do it. The motive not what we do or how much we do or how much we give, having in mind that only what is done out of love is rewarded in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. So God is not interested or impressed again as what we do or how much we do, but why and how we do it. Notice still in 25, the Apostle Paul described Epaphroditus as a fellow soldier thirdly. Once again, my fellow soldier, he means the man of war. Now, we understand warfare because we live under the um, constant wars that go on and the ones we've been involved. I don't think there's a generation in America that doesn't know about war. We've uh, ever since World War II, and it's... It's always one war after the other. It, it doesn't stop. Um, but really, right after World War One, the war to end all wars, they're called the Great War. About every 20 years. And in between, you have a lot of things that are building up for the next one. It's amazing. But here is, a, in terms of spiritual warfare, he's a fellow soldier. Um, this phrase, fellow soldier, appears only one at the time in the New Testament, and it's for Archippus in Philemon chapter 1, verse 2. Timothy was encouraged by Paul, though, to endure hardship as a good soldier, as you know, um, acting as a pastor at Ephesus in 2 Timothy 2, 3. Because spiritual warfare is real, the problem is that you don't always see the enemy. And the enemy, Satan, uses people also. But there's warfare that Satan uses through people. And there's warfare that Satan uses through his demons and the spiritual. And uh, you have to put on the armor of God, as you know. Um, Paul is implying indirectly that the Christian's life is a warfare. We are born into warfare, as I've told you many times. The warfare is not carnal, but spiritual, Ephesians 6.12. Principality of power, dominions of darkness in high places. This room is filled with good angels and bad angels. They're battling. If God could open our eyes, we would see that very clearly. The weapons are not of our warfare are not carnal, but spiritual, mighty through God in 2 Corinthians 10.4. And the armor is provided by God in Ephesians 6.11. It isn't our armor, it's the armor of God that he provides us. But notice also the apostle Paul described Epaphroditus as a messenger. But your messenger, he says, and the word messenger means one sent out, it's translated at times, apostle. The context will determine which is a better translation. He's not trying to say that he's an apostle, or one of the 12 apostles, but he's saying that he has been sent out as an ambassador envoy to Paul, who is in prison right now. And the pronoun yours is emphatic in the Greek, sharply contrasting what uh, he was to Paul to what he was to the Philippians. The Philippians had sent Epaphroditus as a commissioned delegate to the apostle. To deliver a financial gift from them, as we saw in our introduction in chapter 4, verse 18. They gave him a gift. He thanks them. He says, Once and again, you gave to me, and you were the only ones. And he, he was grateful for it. And it's also to aid Paul in his knees, as chapter 2, verse 30 will tell us. So money's not just the only way, but there's there's practical help by the people being there doing things. He was incarcerated; that things had to be taken care of. Uh, he was writing epistles, different things, and so he was there to help them. The messenger Paphroditus had been committed to travel the long journey, about eight hundred miles, on behalf of the Philippians. That's a long ways. Now, travel was very dangerous due to illness and thieves and loss of time and everything else in those days. You know, we get on a plane here and we just jet off three or four hours and we're on the other side of the nation. You know what I mean? Uh, Four or five hours, you're there. But um, travel was very slow and very dangerous in that time, and yet he was committed to go that route. The Apostle Paul described Paphroditus as one who ministered to his needs. And the one who ministered to my needs, very personal, he says here. Um, The word minister, liturgos, it means um, a public servant of the state. The word is used of a man who um, would fund a city function at his own expense because he loved the city such as a play or an athlete or other things. He, He would flip the bill. Uh, the word is used by Paul for the government official in Romans 13:6. It's also used for God's angels, his ministering spirits, flames of fire in Hebrews 1, 7. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew, used it of the special consecrated priests and Levites in Exodus 29, 9. Paul was saying Epaphroditus was one who served at his own expense. The apostle goes out of his way to point out that Epaphroditus was the very one who ministered to him in his needs, emphatic here in the Greek. The very one. People um, want the most out of the church. You know, when we first started as a Bible study with three people and God just started to bring people and everything else and we've seen the development of this church and the growth and everything else and people come and go and people are always saying, well, why don't you guys have this and why don't you do that and everything else and, and, uh, and when we began, they say, well, why don't you guys have this kind of study and it's usually uh, you start a study and they weren't there. And we realized that. It's always best to listen to the Lord, and most people who want the most out of the church are the ones who do the least. They just want to get by. um, They're takers, not givers, and that's what we were in the world. Uh, We were always uh, in awe of people who were our friends or someone in the world who were just givers. Because there are some people that are like that even without being Christians. And we, we used to call them suckers, right? Because we knew better. And yet if we're not careful, then we take that and carry it over to the church all the time. Epaphroditus was um, not like this. Uh, the very word marks Epaphroditus as a generous person thinking of others' needs not just himself as his Lord. Remember the example is Christ. He's the example of Christ that he's put in here. Epaphroditus was committed to meet the needs of Paul, not just accomplishing a mere duty. You as a parent know that when your child does what you tell him to and he realizes that he should be grateful and Thank you and all that you do and that he would do it out of love. And when he does it like that, the task is appreciated much more. But when your child thinks that somehow, um, you know, he's doing you a favor. And it's like a duty that's a heavy weight. It doesn't please us very well, does it? Because after all, you're the parent who's supplying everything, right? <laughs> you're doing everything for them. And here, um, Epaphroditus, uh, he didn't have that kind of heart. His heart and soul were in his commission, his heart and soul were motivated by his love for God, as well as Paul. His heart and soul were in the work of God that he had called him to. And directed him. And that's always very evident by people who are just always around and doing what they do. Whether people are there, whether they're not there. First year, fifth year, tenth year, fifteenth, twentieth year. They're just doing what God has called them to do in the church. And there's no complaint. There's no nothing. They just do it. I remember Pete Mornay, he went home with the Lord, Hank Marquez, and many others. They just served. They served from the beginning of that Bible study until the the day the Lord took them home. They did what they did because they loved the Lord and they loved the people of God. And they weren't looking for any uh, accolades, any rewards, or any applause, or anything else. And um, just refreshing. And that's what God would have us all to be like. We all have the same potential in Christ. Many have noted the progressive and ascending order of Paul's description of Epaphroditus, perhaps showing uh, and implying the development and maturity that should be expected of each of us. Uh, Certainly as a parent, you are looking for growth, development, and maturity in your child as the years go along. If there isn't that, then we get concerned. And if it's lack of maturity, we get on their case because we see their physical development and their growth, then we know that their maturity should be there. Um, And so we would get on them more severe. And the same way in Christ, we should expect growth, development, and maturity in Christ. Uh, Some people are 20 years in the Lord and they're still scraping their knees and wetting their pants spiritually. They're still sucking their thumb. You know, like those teachers that teach for 25 years and they teach the same thing 25 times. There's no growth, no development, no maturity in their teaching. It's just, I'm going to put my time in and that's it. A sign read, there is no limit to the good that a man can do if he doesn't care who gets the credit. If you and I really do not care who gets the credit, then we will just... Enjoy ourselves doing for God what he calls us to do and whatever we see needed to be done. Because you're not looking for people to be looking. Jesus got all over the Pharisees all the time. They wanted the chief seats in the corner praying and called me rabbi and all those kind of things. If we're going to be committed servants like Epaphroditus, then we need to recognize that being born again is only the first step to being a fellow worker. For you and I fit somewhere in the body of Christ and we're to fit to do effective work for him. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 gives us the gifts and the faith and proportion to fulfill that. A fellow soldier also, faithfully opposing and being victorious over the attacks of our lives to hinder each of us from serving and growing, putting on that armor in Ephesians 6:10 through 18. The is on. Sometimes it's mellow, sometimes it's intense. I have to resort to those uh, spiritual weapons. Also, being a messenger, one who can be trusted to be faithful to fulfill our call, a steward must be found faithful in these things, first Corinthians four two. When God opens those doors for us to minister to somebody the gospel to, to share with them. Um, it might be not the most appropriate time and whatever it may be, but you're sensitive and you realize that. Also, a person ministering to others, even when it costs me denying myself. Knowing Jesus paid the greatest price for me, as he said in Matthew 16, first, losing sight of yourself, denying yourself, picking up your cross and following him, ministering to others, building them up. So Epaphroditus was a, a, a committed servant. Secondly, notice, 26 to 28, Epaphroditus was a caring servant. The apostle Paul declared Epaphroditus was missing... The Philippians, since he was longing for you all, he says. Verse 26, Paul said Epaphroditus was homesick. The word longing means to have a strong yearning, greatly desiring a participle, indicating a persistent continuous, marking his affection for them. When you've been gone from home, maybe for the first time or too long, Regards how many times you start missing home, the people. The word is used of Paul's longing and affection for the Philippians himself in chapter one, verse eight. And the word is used by James for the Holy Spirit who dwells in the believer to lust or long to envy for God. That that desire to not share us with anybody else. Paul was giving them. His first reason that he was considering it necessary to send Epaphroditus back to them. This is the first reason. Epaphroditus was a witness of a disciple of Jesus by his love. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another in John 13, 35. And that gets checked every day, every opportunity. I'm the first one to know. God nails me. He convicts us. He gets on us. We're the first to know. when We blow it. But notice also the Apostle Paul declared that Epaphroditus was concerned for their concern over his sickness. It's kind of funny. But, you know, it works out the same with someone you love, right? Um, you may be concerned for their sickness and then they're concerned that you're too concerned and you're not taking care of yourself because you're concerned about them, right? And that's the mutual love. And, and it's not a, a one-sided love, it's, it's, it's a two-way street. He says, and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. So Paul gave them the second reason necessary to send Epaphroditus back to them. He was distressed, which means to be sorely troubled, full of heaviness and anguish, even depressed to an extent. Bummed out. The origin of the word means away from home, being beside himself. He was anxiously concerned about the Philippians' anxious worry about him being sick. The same word is used of our Lord Jesus Christ at Gethsemane. In his agony in Matthew 26:37 and Mark 1413. Now notice Paul does not say how long Epaphroditus was sick, but he must have been sick for quite a while since the news had reached Philippi 800 miles, and back to Paul again. There is no details. Epaphroditus could have come and been accompanied by some other brethren and perhaps got sick while they were there and then they took that news back. That's one possibility. Or it could be that someone who knew about his sickness um, traveled to Philippi and told them. We're not told. Either way, it had to have been some time since 800 miles is a long ways with all the arrangements of those days. Notice 27, the Apostle Paul declared that Epaphroditus came close to death. Paul stresses the severity of his condition by declaring, for indeed he was sick almost unto death. Now, sometimes we get pretty sick and we get concerned one another and we, we see that it's, you're not getting better but your cough is progressing. We get a little more concerned But usually there's a point of peaking, there's a turnaround. But when it keeps going and keeps going and you realize, I've got to get you to the hospital, and you know that it's severe. And this is what he's talking about here. The idea being that he was at the door of entering eternity. He had nearly given up hope. The sickness is not indicated. We have no idea the important thing that he focused upon is that he was a servant not concerned about himself even though he was at the point of death. Notice Paul acknowledged God's mercy on both of them. The sovereignty of God was identified by Paul towards the Epaphroditus. The word but marks the sharp contrast between his nearness of death and his recovery to life. Mercy, leos, is the word. The mercy of God intervened, meaning compassion and pity to help somebody in need. God does not care to have us suffer. He doesn't get any joy out of it. But God's sovereignty does as He wills, when He wills, to whom He wills, where He wills, and as often as He wills being perfect in knowledge and wisdom, knowing the end from the beginning. And we know that His will is always the best. And yet sometimes He does allow things to happen. And this world is a fallen world, and sufferings happen, and disease happens, and accidents happen. And yet God in His sovereignty at times allows certain things to take place that we don't understand. And so our faith is tested during those times. The sovereignty of God was identified, noticed by Paul, also towards himself. The way Paul sees God's pity over him was that he didn't have to sorrow. Upon sorrow here, implying sorrow multiplied. He was very involved and concerned over the sickness of Epaphroditus here. The love of Paul for Paphroditus is marked by the intense degree of sorrow that he would be experiencing and did experience. Notice Paul revealed um, some important truths about sickness and divine healing here. Paul certainly had the gift of healing for he prayed for many and they were healed. But Paul admits that God at times chooses to work apart from the human vessel. Paul also shows us that it's not the will of God for all to be healed right away or all the time or every time. He is sovereign. We have seen God touch the lives of people here to be healed physically in different ways. Our secretary Wendy years ago was diagnosed with Stage 4 and 5 of cancer in her bones. And the Lord healed her. Amy Kins. Tumor from her abdomen to her neck. Her whole chest black. Healed her. Then there's others who God has taken home. We pray, we pray in faith, we lay hands on you, we anoint you with oil, and if God chooses to heal you, we rejoice with you. We're praying and hoping that He heals you, but He's sovereign. It doesn't mean that He loves you less than someone else. It means that He knows what's best for you, not someone else. And that's a mark of maturity. Maturity. Paul at the same time knew that it did not ultimately rest on his faith to believe as a mark of his spirituality. As so many today say that if you don't get healed, you don't have any faith, especially the positive confession and faith teachers of seed faith and so on. It's ridiculous. It's an uncompassionate gospel. Of course, if you ask me to pray for you in that camp and I pray for you and you don't get healed, of course, it's going to be your lack of faith, not mine because I have all the faith in the world. It's a carnal doctrine because I'm always going to blame you, not me. And how uncompassionate is that when you are so down physically That I would accuse you and attack you and your trust of God rather than cry with you and hug you and pray with you. It's carnal. It's terrible. He didn't blame Epaphroditus. That Epaphroditus, you just don't have enough faith. If you had the faith of a mustard seed, you'd be healed. He didn't say that. Paul teaches us he did not control the gift of healing, but God does. Hebrews 2 4 tells us God did miracles through the apostles as he willed. Paul left Triphemus sick at Miletus in 2 Timothy 4.20. Paul himself experienced sickness often, Dr. Luke was with him. <laughs> Paul indicated sickness as part of life in this fallen world without it being stated as having sin or lack of faith or even that God was chastening him. Though all of those things can occur because of lack of faith, because of sin or whatever it may be, or chastening. Okay, But he's not saying that's what it was. Look at verse 28. The Apostle Paul declared that Epaphroditus was a source of comfort. Paul would relieve the Philippians' concern over his sickness by his presence. Therefore, I sent him the more eagerly. This was Paul's concluding decision. The word send. Concluding decision here is another epistolary heiress as before placing himself in the time bracket so when they read it at the time it would be in a past tense as a reading. It. The manner of his decision was more eagerly, more diligent and hastily. The urgency is there because Paul was concerned about Epaphroditus and the Philippians, not himself evidence that Paul was also a servant after the order of Christ, thinking of others before himself, as chapter 2, 17 says. Now, Paul would gladly do without Epaphroditus in prison, knowing they would be relieved of their anxiety seeing him again. What would people think? Would they be joyous to see you or they say, oh, here he comes again. He made it back. How would people respond to you? Would it be a joy to see you or say, oh, man, I didn't think he'd make it back. I was hoping he'd make it back. Are you a blessing to the body of Christ? Your wife, your husband, your kids. Other brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul would gladly do without Epaphroditus in prison. That when you see him again, you may rejoice. Wow. He was concerned about their personal joy, which means to be glad, well knowing that he would be alone well knowing that he himself would miss Epaphroditus in their usual daily routine of the day. Paul would also be filled with joy concerning over the joy of the Philippians, so it's two-sided. He says, and I may be less sorrowful. The joy of Paul implied by no longer being sorrowful over the sickness, condition, and homesickness of Epaphroditus. He would be less sorrowful knowing that they were relieved and rejoicing in seeing Epaphroditus and he being joyous for them. Once again, the example of Christ through these three men is Very, very, very clear. Because the Philippians were bad examples of this. There's disunity. There's quarreling. It's carnal. Now, if they didn't have that potential, then Paul would be unjust in demanding it of them, right? But because they are born again children of God, they have been given the same salvation as anybody else. He can rightly require it of them. So you and I do not have to feel bad or feel that we are, um, you know, being unfair when we tell people who say they're born again and they say, well, I can't do it. Oh, yeah, you can. You see, if you're a non believer and you Tell me that, you know, you can't kick drugs, you can't kick alcohol, you can't kick whatever. You fill in the blank. I understand what you're talking about. So I want to share Christ with you. But if you're a Christian, you're all mine. There is no lame excuses. The only thing we lack is the will to obey. Nothing else. Unless you want to charge God with giving you some kind of inferior salvation. I don't think so. This letter is known as the epistle of joy. The joy is of Paul. The bond the tied Epaphroditus and Paul was their Christian-like service to others in the body of the church. This is not natural, but motivated by the fruit of the spirit of God-beloved, Galatians 5.22. It's supernatural. A Christian is a mind through which Christ thinks and a heart through which Christ loves, a voice through which Christ speaks, a hand through which Christ Helps. Spurgeon put it this way As an arrow which falls short of the mark, as a fig tree which yields no figs, as a candle which smokes but yields no light, as a cloud without rain and a well without water, is a man who has not served the Lord. He has led a wasted life, a life to which the flower and glory of existence are lacking. Call it not life at all, but write it down as animated death. Whoa. That's a great illustration. If we're going to be carrying servants like Epaphroditus, um, then we must be cultivating our relationship in the body. Don't settle for fast food, drive through at the pulpit. <laughs> some people just want to get in and get out as soon as they can them before I even say amen they're ready getting up ready to go it's just in and out hang out meet people find out what goes on in the church ask how you can get involved the purpose of the church is to perfect the saints for the work of ministry Ephesians 4:11 through 16 be aware of other people's needs and hurts If you see someone sitting by themselves, go up and introduce yourself. If you see someone who seems disturbed or bummed out, ask them if you can help or pray for them. Be a source of comfort to others. Sometimes all that may be needed is a hug. Sometimes a little help to relieve the hectic pace. You see a brother or sister who's just she been bogged down with so much work. Hey, let, let, me, let me help you out here. Let me do this for you or whatever. Some of you ladies, you see a mommy that has three toddlers, you know, um, and she has no help. Relieve her a day. Do something. Simple. No simple things. James 3.13 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct what has, his works are done in the meekness of Of wisdom. Epaphroditus was a caring servant. Notice third and last here Epaphroditus was a commended servant, verse 29 and 30. In 29, the Apostle Paul declared to them that they were to welcome him as family. Paul said there were to be no reservations about Epaphroditus as if he had failed in his mission but actually suffered. Listen to the words, receive him therefore in the Lord. So Paul uses the word receive, which means to receive oneself with, with favorable uh, uh, understanding and motivation. Um, this is an imperative command, by the way. Paul knew the Philippians had a problem with uh, esteeming others better than themselves. The word also means to look for or wait for something or someone. It is used of Simeon, who was waiting for the consolation of Israel in Luke 2.25. It's used for Jesus receiving sinners in Luke 15.2. It's used of looking for the blessed hope, the rapture in Titus 2.13. Paul gave the manner they were to welcome Epaphroditus, and is expressed by the term with all gladness. This is also an imperative command. None of these are suggestions expressing the fulfillment of their longing and expectation, reinforcing the idea of having no reservation about him and his mission. Because Paul knew somebody would say, ah, he couldn't hack it, he just bummed out. Okay, you went out to help him, you didn't. Paul is commending him because he knows the heart of believers if they don't walk in the Spirit. Notice the apostle Paul declared to them that they were to see such men as invaluable and hold such men in esteem. So Paul is not telling the Philippians to worship Epaphroditus. We don't worship people. Men and women are mere instruments. God is the one who uses the individual. Paul is telling the Philippians to honor such men, recognizing their value to the body and the work of Christ. The word esteem means to honor, prize, or to be precious. It's used uh, of honorable men in Luke 14.8. The word is used for Christ and translated precious in 1 Peter two four. A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor, Proverbs 29.23 says. The esteem is in what Christ has done in and through them, not self-esteem that is taught by psychology or quote, quote, Christian psychology was like grape nut is neither grape nor nut. There's no such animal. Psychology is all secular. If you don't believe me, call USC and ask them for the Christian psychology department. See what they tell you. Or UCLA. Or Stanford. Believers after the example of Christ not considering themselves before others. Men of reputation based on character. Believers like these are to be held in high regard and value for the church and the service of the church. The secret of greatness is a servant of all after the example of Christ as Mark 10.35-45 tells us. Notice the Apostle Paul also declared to them the reasons they were to hold in high regards and value. Epaphroditus in verse 30. Paul said Epaphroditus almost lost his life serving Christ. Because of, for the work of Christ he came close to death. He came close to death not in and for his own service but as a bondservant like his Lord in benefit of Paul, without any selfish ambition or conceit, as he said in Philippians 2.3. He came close to death, putting himself in the same league as his Lord, who became obedient to the point of death, even as he was giving himself over to the point of death, the death of the cross. Paul said that Epaphroditus was not concerned about himself, not regarding his life. The word regarding is a gambling word. To stake everything on the turn of a dice, it's only used this one time in the New Testament. The word is used of people who risk their lives by caring for the sick and the dead during pestilence. From the word venturesome, reckless. In Alexandria, there grew up an association of men known as the Parabolani. Among the hazardous duties of this suicide squad, these people chanced visiting the ill and the contagious in prison, risking their lives. That's the word. He was lowly of mind, esteeming others better than himself, as chapter 2, verse 3 says. Paul said, it was thinking of others. To supply what was lacking in your service towards me. And the word supply simply means to fill up to the capacity. The word is used of fulfilled prophecy in Matthew 13, 14. It's used to describe... The filling up of sins of sinful men in First Thessalonians two sixteen, and the idea is that of money sent to Paul was not his only need. The word lacking means deficiency. Paul was in need of practical help, not just money, though he was most appreciative of it. And we'll see that when we get to chapter four verse. 4. 414 and 17 through 18. The Apostle needed other members of the body to edify him and complement his own gifts and to help him during his imprisonment. He needed fellowship with other believers like all other people do. We can handle being alone for a short amount of time, but it's not good to be alone. And long periods of isolation alone is not good. He was not looking out for his own interests. But that of others. Philippians 2.4. You know, parenthood is the best illustration. For commended service. As it usually is done by our children. In the latter years. If we have done a good job. Out of love. But if it never comes it doesn't matter we know we've done it out of love but when it does come we realize we've only done what we were responsible to do as parents it's no big deal if we expect to be a commend the servants like Epaphroditus then we need to be thanking God for the faithful servants that are obedient to the Lord 2nd Timothy 4:11 says only Luke is with me get Mark and bring him with you for he is useful to me for ministry let others honor us not ourselves don't blow your own horn let another man praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips, Proverbs 27 2 says. Take some risks. Don't play it safe all the time. Step out in faith. Isaiah 6 8, you know the passage where. He's dealing with God and God's dealing with him. He says, also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am. Send me. Isaiah 6, 8. Epaphroditus was a commended servant. Let me close with a quote from Spurgeon. Spurgeon said to his congregation, and I'm quoting him, I want every member of this church to be a worker. We do not want any drones. If there are any of you who want to eat and drink and do nothing, there are plenty of places elsewhere where you can do it. There are empty pews about in abundance. Go and fill them, for we do not want you. Wow. You understand the nature of the church, ladies and gentlemen? then you're going to be involved. Just like you're a member of family, you're involved. You have your part. as a suffering servant, was a committed servant, a caring servant, a commended servant. That's what each of us should be. Every one of us. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, and your goodness. Deal with our hearts, and we thank you for your grace. We love you, Lord, and we pray that you would just speak to our hearts. And if anybody doesn't know you, Lord, you would speak to them even over the radio, Lord. That they would call on your name to be saved. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. If you expect to be a servant, it has to be through the new birth. It will never work out any other way. God wants you to realize you're a sinner lost in need of salvation and repentance of your sins. If you do that in the name of Jesus, he will save you right now. By grace through faith. If this is your desire, whether you're here or over the internet, this is your prayer to the Lord to save you. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.